Hey guys, and welcome to Dummy Mond Paranormal Podcast. Um, it's a pleasure doing this podcast with all you listeners tonight. As you know, we also have our Demi Mond Paranormal on Facebook.com. You can join us there as well as Anchor.com. Also, tonight's episode is going to be about Egypt. Now, when I'm talking about Egypt, I'm talking about mummies, mythology, ancient queens and kings and all that good stuff. Even saw a few haunted locations and maybe some abandoned locations. Let's see if we'll get into that tonight. I feel like we're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Going to learn a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, We're going to talk about the mummification techniques and the the importance of the sacred jars of in the mummification techniques. Well, before I get too far into it in the introduction, let's dive right into our first segment, and I'll meet you there. Thanks for joining me tonight, and I hope you join me next week or even tomorrow for our next episode, and I hope you enjoy this one. Let's go. Hey y'all, so welcome to our first segment. I thought for our first segment tonight we would just dive right into the haunted locations. One of our more classic topics for our podcast here. Um, one of the first locations I have here is the Baron Empain Palace here. Which is literally known as the Hindu Palace. And it's located in Heliotopus, which is a suburb of, is a suburb northeast of central Cairo, which is in Egypt. Now, it is a, it's a distinctive and historic Hindu temple inspired mansion. So I thought that was pretty. You guys, you guys got to see it. It's quite magnificent looking, if I do say so myself. Another interesting um, fact about this place that this palace was designed by a French architect named Alexander Marcel, and decorated, and it was decorated by George Louis Claude. Now it was inspired by the Hindu temple of. Angkor Wat, which is located in Cambodia. It was built between 1907 and 1911 in reinforced concrete. Now, this palace, tours have reportedly heard voices throughout the palace at night. Even guards and police have reported seeing ghostly apparitions of people who were once residents of the palace wandering around the outside lawn at midnight. But supposedly, who were these people who were once the residents of the Baron Empain Palace, you may ask? Well, let's find out. Okay, so this palace belonged to originally to a Belgian man 
named Baird, a, a Belgian baron, excuse me, named M. Payne, who wanted to build the most beautiful structure, supposedly, in Egypt. It's a miracle of architecture, which would stand as a symbol for magnificence. Alas, the building now stands as a symbol of fear and evil because it is so haunted. So, let's get a little deeper into the haunting of this palace here. It is said that the lady of the house, the baron's sister or his wife, has fallen or some people say she was pushed from the palace's tower and nobody knows why. After the baron's death in the late 1920s, no one seemed interested in claiming the palace. Witnesses have also claimed seeing fires break out from one of the building's windows and then disappear. And then some hear, some claim hearing the angry voices of the baron and the lady of the palace arguing and screaming with each other. The lights of the house have been seen to go off and on at random times when the palace is completely empty. Um, during the 1990s, the palace's evil reputation spread wide and attracted reckless young men and women who were believed to be Satan worshippers, would practice black magic and do blood rituals there. And since, 19, and since 2009, the palace had belonged to the Ministry of the State of Antiquities, and there are plans to reopen it to visitors as a museum. So what do you guys think of that? That's pretty creepy, huh? I thought so. Anyway, do you think that would be a good idea to open that place as a museum, even though there's fires that break out unexpectedly and then it is diminished out of thin air? I don't know. It kind of seems like an accident waiting to happen. Or is it even an accident? And I feel like more people would be pushed and shoved. And I, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like that's not a good idea. There's definitely a vengeful spirit in that palace. So our next location is somewhere that's pretty, you know, obvious to be haunted, which is this, this is the Valley of the Kings. Now, we, if you know what Valley of the Kings are, it's a place of burial where, you know, pharaohs and kings were buried. So the Valley of the Kings is located in the Theban Hills off the Western Nile, and it, and it has been used as a burial site for nearly 500 years. These tombs were constructed for powerful pharaohs and noble, other nobles, very powerful nobles. The valley is known to contain 63 tombs and chambers, so it's no surprise that there are curses, rumors of curses lingering, lingering around from pharaohs and kings trying to ward off grave, rob, grave robbers and other kooks to keep off the riches. One of the apparitions supported in the Valley of the Kings is a pharaoh riding his chariot with his golden collar, and he supposedly has horses that are black as night, driving his chariot around, trying to ward off peop unwanted people away from the tombs around 
from his tomb even. People have also um, reported seeing pharaohs and kings and stuff like that around this place. Even so, up to, up to 10,000 visitors arrive in the valley on any given day of the week. And, you know, just to visit the tombs, just to see what it's like. And they claim to have seen a pharaoh riding a fiery chariot drawn by black horses. Tell me, you would not be frightened if you saw that. Also buried in this valley is the tomb of King Tut. And as we, some of us are pretty familiar about the curse of King Tut's tomb, was actually wasn't. Nobody actually found real evidence that his curse was actually linked to any of the deaths of the people who excavated his tomb. Could any of y'all even imagine capturing an EVP from the Valley of the Kings? That would just be crazy talk. Somebody speaking ancient Egyptian or something, that would be absolutely frightening and amazing. Our next location is the Pyramids of Gaza. The Pyramids of Gaza are one of the most well-known haunted places in Egypt. People have reported seeing ghosts floating through mid-air, while other people have reported seeing walking ghosts, walking through walls, walking up behind them, whatever you have you. Some have seen ghosts wearing clothes as early as the 20th century, or as late as the 20th century. Some people have also seen Egyptian pharaohs, just like in the Valley of the King, trying to scare away people from the pyramids from which they once owned thousands of years ago. Also, residents that live nearby have reported hearing unexplained screaming around their residents and disembodied voices instructing them to leave the place. Isn't that crazy? Oh my goodness gracious. I would probably leave immediately if a thousands of year old ghost told me to leave the location. You bet your sweet butt I'd be gone. No questions asked. So tell me, have you, have any of you, any of my listeners ever been to Egypt? Have you ever visited the Giza pyramids or the Valley of the Kings or anything like that, you let me know because that would be really interesting to hear any stories or experiences you guys have had. Also in the Giza Pyramids, the ghost of Howard Carter, who was a British archaeologist and Egyptologist, was reported to be seen in an apparition by people who visited the Giza Pyramids. He was known for discovering the this, discovering King Tut's tomb. He discovered that tomb on the 26th of November, 1922. And our next location is the Farafa Desert. And the Farafa Desert is supposedly haunted by Alkanitan, who is said to wander the... the the desert, which is also known as the White Desert of Egypt, and it was reported by dozens of tourists and nomads that he they have seen his apparition. Legend says that this is because Alkanitan abolished the Egyptian gods when he became pharaoh, 
and this angered the religious followers and priests of Egypt. So upon his death, the priests are have been believed to have cursed him to wander the deserts forever as punishment. So that just about does it for this segment of our lovely, lovely podcast. I hope you're enjoying it so far. And I'll see you in our second one when I talk you through the process of mummification. I'll see you then. This is very exciting. Join me. So welcome to our second segment, which is on the mummification here. So, who was mummified? So, after death, the pharaohs of Egypt usually were mummified and buried in big elaborate tombs. Members members of nobility and officials also received the same treatment, and occasionally common people. However, the process was expensive and beyond the means of a lot of people. For religious reasons, some animals were also mummified. The sacred bulls from the early dynasties had their own cemetery at Saqqara. Also baboons, cats, birds, and crocodiles, which also had great religious significance were sometimes mummified, especially in the later dynasty dynasties. So let's get into the methods of embalming or treating the dead bodies in mummification practices in ancient Egypt. So as we all know, this is called mummification and using special processes. The Egyptians removed all the mo- moisture from the body, leaving only a dried form that would not easily decay. Because, as we all know, if the more moisture there is on a body, the faster the decay is. In their religion, it was very important to preserve the dead body in a lifelike manner, as good as it could possibly be. So successful they were that today we can even, you know view the the mummified body of an Egyptian and have a good idea of what he or she would have looked like in life 3,000 years ago. Can you you guys imagine that? 3,000? I mean, it's really incredible. They really were brilliant people back then. Mummification was practiced throughout the most of early Egyptian history. The earliest mummies come from prehistoric times, probably by, and they were probably accidental, by chance in dry set, dry sand and air. Preserve some of the bodies buried in shallow pits dug into the sand. About 26,000 BC, during the 4th and 5th dynasties, Egyptians probably began to mummify the dead intentionally. They realized, hey, this is actually a pretty good idea. (laughs) A little bit of a joke there. The practice continued and developed for well over 2,000 years, well into the Roman period. Within anyone 
within any one period the quality of the mummification verified varied depending on the price paid for it the breast prepared in preserved mummies are from the 18th through the 20th dynasties of the new kingdom which would be the 1572 1075 bc and included those of king tight and other well-known pharaohs and it is, it is the general process of this period and we're going to describe it right here all right so as we get into the process of mummification let's just you know let's just shout out one fact here the mummification process took 70 days 70 days that is a long time but it's because we kind of short if you think about what it preserved and for how long thousands and thousands upon you thousands of years so i guess it was worth it and they wanted to look good for the afterlife anyway so this process took special priests who worked as embalmers treating and wrapping the body beyond knowing the correct rituals and prowls in prayers to be performed at various stages. The priests also needed to a detailed knowledge of human anatomy, obviously. The first process, the first step in the process was the removal of all eternal parts that might decay rapidly. The brain was removed by carefully inserting special hooked instruments up through the nostrils in order to pull out bits of bits of brain tissue now this won't hurt because you're already dead so you won't feel anything now this was in a delicate operation one which could easily disfigure the face and nobody wanted that the embalmers then removed the organs from the abdomen and the chest through a cut usually made on the left side of the abdomen so they removed like your intestines and your lungs and stuff in your heart of course the other organs were preserved separately with the stomach liver lungs and intestines placed in special boxes or jars called as can called canotopic bars jars sorry these were buried with the mummy in later mummies the organs were treated wrapped and replaced within the body even so, used canopic jars continue to be part of the burial ritual. So then the embalmers next removed all the moisture from the body. They did this by covering the body with nitron, natron, a type of salt, which has great drying properties, and by placing additional natron packets inside the body as well when the body had dried out completely embalmers removed the eternal packets and lightly washed the nitron off the body the result was a very dried out but recognizable human body or a recognizable human form to make the mummy seem even more lifelike sunken areas of the body were filled out with linen and other materials and even false eyes were added so next came to the fun part the wrapping began 
Each mummy needed hundreds of yards of linen. The priests carefully would carefully wound the long strips of linen around the body, sometimes even wrapping each finger and toe separately before wrapping the entire hand or foot. In order to protect the dead from mishap, amulets were placed along the wrappings and prayers and magical words were written on the on some of the linen strips. Often the priest placed a mask of the person's face between the layers of head bandages. At several stages, the form was coated with warm resin and was wrapping in the wrapping resumed once again. At last, the priest wrapped a final cloth or shroud in place and secured it with linen strips in the mummy was now complete. The priests prepared the mummy but were not the only ones busy during this time. Although the tomb preparation usually had begun long before the person's actual death, now there was a deadline and craftsmen and worker craftsmen and workers and artists worked quickly. So there was much to be placed in the tomb that a person would would need in the afterlife, including furniture and statuettes. They are all readied in wall paintings of a re- of religious or daily scenes were prepared and lists of food and prayers were finished. Through a magical process, these models, painting pictures and paintings and lists would become the real thing when needed in the afterlife. Everything now was and now everything was ready for the funeral after the mummy had everything it needed for the afterlife as part as as part of the funeral priests performed special religious rites at the tomb's entrance the most important part of the cemetery i mean the ceremony was actually called the opening of the mouth a priest touched various parts of the mummy with a special instrument to open those parts of the body to the senses it enjoyed in life and needed in the afterlife. By touching the instrument to the mouth, the dead person could now speak and eat. He was now ready to, for his journey to the afterlife. The mummy was placed in his coffin or even coffins in the burial chamber and the entrance was sealed up. Such elaborate burial rites might suggest that the Egyptians were pretty preoccupied with the thoughts of death, but on the contrary, they began early to make plans for their death because their great of their great love of life. They could even think of no life better than the present, and they wanted to be sure that it would continue after death. So why preserve the body? The Egyptians believed that the mummified body was home for the soul or the spirit. If the body was destroyed, the spirit might be lost. The idea, the idea of spirit was complex, involving these really three spirits were involved here. The Ka, the Ba, and the Ah. The Ka was known as a double of the person who remained in the tube and need the offerings and objects there. The Ba, or the soul, 
was free to fly out of the tomb and return to it. And the Auk, perhaps translated to as spirit, which had, which had to travel through the underworld to the final judgment and entrance to the afterlife. To the Egyptians, all three of these spirits were essential. So guys, what did you feel? I thought that was pretty fascinating. I really did. Um, also, I want to mention that mummification was, story, was done even outside of Egypt even. I know it was done in China, in certain parts of South America, um, Peru, I think is one. May, uh, yeah, I knew Peru for a fact did mummification as well. And maybe we'll get into that in a different podcast, in a de- different episode. But I thought that was really interesting that their inspiration, you know, spread throughout the world like that. They're really revolutionary and they're really fascinating. They were brilliant people. They really were. So the canopic jars that were mentioned before, they're usually four in number. And as we said before, they were for the safekeeping of human organs, such as the stomach, intestines, lungs, and liver. It was all, now I just realized that the heart was kept inside the mummy's body because it was believed to be the heart, the, 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 it was believed to be the seat of the soul by ancient Egyptians. So they left that inside the body of the dead person who was being mummified. Also, early canopic jars were placed inside a canopic chest and were buried in tombs together with the sarcophagus of the dead. Later, sometimes they were arranged in rows beneath the bier or at the four corners of the chamber. After the early periods, there were usually inscriptions on the outside of the jars. Sometimes they were long and complex. The scholar, the scholar Sir Ernest Budge quoted an inscription from one of these jars that reads, Thy bread is to thee, thy beer is to thee, thou livest upon that on which Ra lives. In other inscriptions, tell of purification in the afterlife. So on each jar of these canopic jars, there was a god responsible for protecting a particular organ and was and was himself so on one of these jars here was the baboon headed god Hopi who was who represented the north whose jar contained the lungs and was protected by the goddess Nephthys Hopi was often used interchangeably with the Nile god Hopi Although they are actually different gods, so Hoppy and Hoppy were two completely different gods, but they were used interchangeably. On another jar, Dumatef, the jackal-headed god representing the east, his jar contained the stomach and it was protected by the goddess Neith. On another jar here, we had Imsidi who was the human-headed god representing the south and whose jar contained the liver and was protected by the goddess Isis. And last but not least, we have Kabosanuf, 
the falcon-headed god representing the west, and his jar contained the intestines, which is protect, which was protected by the goddess Serket. So, by the third intermediate period and later, dummy cup canopic jars were introduced and improved embalming techniques were allowed the viscera to remain into the body. The traditional jars remained a feature of tombs but were no longer hollowed out for storage of organs. Copious jars were produced and surviving samples of them can be seen in museums all around the world. I hope you like that segment. Please join us next as we dive a little into mythology. I'm really enjoying this episode tonight. It's really fascinating. I'm honored to explore it with y'all, all all my listeners from all around the world. Give me a thumbs up in this podcast if you're enjoying it. And please stay tuned for our next segment in our future episodes. And if you're not not already, Become a member of our online group, paranormal group, Demimon Paranormal, same way it's spelled here on Facebook.com. I hope to see you there.
Okay, guys, and thank you for joining me for our third installment of this episode. Um, for this episode, I thought I would take you to 11 Egyptian gods and goddesses that I found totally fascinating. And we're just going to talk a little bit about them for this segment. I think it would be really refreshing and really quite fascinating and interesting to learn about. So let's dive right in. So our first star of our list here is the goddess Hathor, who is usually depicted as a cow or as a woman with the head of a cow, or as a woman with just cow's ears. Hathor embodied motherhood and fertility. She was the goddess of both of those things, and it was believed that she protected women in childbirth. She also had an important funerary aspect, being known as the Lady of the West. Now that pertained to tombs that were generally built on the west bank of the Nile, and in some traditions, Hathor, she would welcome the setting sun every night. Living people hoped to be welcomed into the afterlife the same way. Now, one of our more important figures on this list is Egypt's most important, or one of most of Egypt's most important deities is Osiris, and he was the god of the underworld. He symbolized death, resurrection, and a cycle of Nile floods that Egypt relied on for agricultural fertility. According to the myth, Osiris was king of Egypt, but he was murdered and dismembered, chopped up into little pieces, and thrown into the Nile River by his brother Set, who we're going to get into in a little while here. But his wife, Isis, reassembled his body and resurrected him, allowing him, allowing them to conceive a son. The god in this son was the god Horus. He was represented as a mummified king, wearing wrappings that only left the green skin of his hands and face exposed. So who is Isis, you may ask? Well, let's dive right into her story here. So, the origins of Isis are pretty obscure. Unlike many gods, she can't be tied to a specific town, and there are no certain mentions of her in the earliest of Egyptian literature. Over time, she grew in importance, though, eventually becoming the most important goddess in the, in the Pantheon. As the devoted wife who resurrected her, as we said before, her Osiris, who she resurrected after his murder by his brother, said, their son Horus, and after she resurrected her husband and raised her son Horus, Isis embodied the traditional virtues of Egyptian quality as wife and mother. As the wife of the god of the underworld, Isis was also known as one of the main deities concerned with the rites of the dead, along with her sister, Nymphthys. Isis acted as a divine mourner, and her maternal care was often depicted as extending to the dead in the underworld. Isis was 
one of the last of the ancient Egyptian gods still to be worshipped. In the Greco-Roman period, she was identified with the great goddess Aphrodite, and her cult spread as far west as Great Britain and as far east as Afghanistan. It is believed that depictions of Isis with the infant Horus influenced Christian imagery of Mary with the infant Jesus. So now we move on to the Osiris and Isis's son Horus, who was depicted as a falcon or as a man with a falcon's head. Horus was a sky god associated with war and hunting. He was also the embodiment of the divine kingship, and in some areas, the reigning king was considered to be a manifestation of Horus. According to the Osiris myth, Horus was, as we know, the son of Isis and Osiris, and he was magically conceived after the murder of Osiris by his brother Seth. Horus was raised to avenge his father's death. One tradition holds that Horus lost his eye fighting with Seth, but his eye was magically healed by the god Thoth. Because the right and left eyes of Horus were associated, retrospectively, with the sun and the moon, the loss and restoration of Horus's left eye gave a mythical explanation for the phases of the moon. Now we move on to the murderous god Seth, who was the god of chaos, violence, deserts, and storms. As we know, he killed his brother Osiris, and once Osiris was resurrected, he he had his son to avenge him. There is also a version of the myth where Seth uh, tricks Osiris into laying down in a coffin and seals it shut and suffocates and kills him. That's just another, some other version of the myth that can be told other than the original, more you know, more traditional sense of the myth here. So Seth's, Seth's appearance poses a problem for some Egyptologists. So, usually when I see him, I think he's supposed to be an alligator, or, or more so a crocodile. But some Egyptologists are confused of what animal he is depicted of. So, he's seen as a human with the head of an animal, obviously. But, they can't figure out what animal he's supposed to be. Could be because he has a long snout and long ears that are squared at the tips. So, he has square tips at the edge of his snout and the edge of his long ears in his fully in his fully animal form he has a thin dog-like body and a straight tail with a tuft at the very end some many scholars now believe that there is no such animal ever that had ever existed that seth was modeled after so our next person of interest or god of interest i should say is Toth, who was the head of a triad of gods worshipped at Memphis. The other two members of the triad were, were Toth's wife, the lion-headed goddess Sokhmed, and the god Nefertum, who, were, who may have been the couple's son. Toth's original association seems to be from craftsmen and builders. The fourth dynasty architect 
Imhotep has deified after his death. He was deified after his death of the son of Ta. Scholars have suggested that the Greek word Agoptos, the source of the name Egypt, may have started as a corruption of Kappa, the name of the pause. What that was the name, one of the name, that was one of the names of pause of Tuz shrines. And I bring you to our next star of our show here, the god Ra here. Now this is, now go, so Ra is one of several deities associated with the sun. The god Ra is usually represented with a human body in the head of a hawk. It was believed that he sailed across the sky in a boat each day and then made a passage through the underworld each night during which he would have to defeat the snake god Apophis in order to rise again. Our next star of our show here, next god of interest here, is Anubis, who was concerned with funerary practices in the care of the dead. Now, he is usually represented as a jackal, or as a man with the head of a jackal. The association of jackals with death and funerals likely arose because Egyptians have have observed jackals scavenging around cemeteries. In the Old Kingdom, before Osiris rose to prominence as the lord of the underworld, Anubis was considered the principal god of the dead. According to the Osiris myth, Anubis embalmed and wrapped the body of the murdered king, becoming the patron god for embalmers. Our next star here is Thoth. Now, Thoth was the god of writing and wisdom, and could be depicted in the form of a baboon or a sacred ibis, or as a man with the head of an ibis. An ibis is a bird. He was believed to have invented language in the hieroglyphic script and to serve as a scribe for the advisors of the gods. As the god of wisdom, Thoth was said to possess knowledge of magic and secrets unavailable to the other gods. In underworld scenes showing the judgment undergone by the deceased after their death, Thoth is depicted as weighing the hearts of the deceased and reporting the verdict to Osiris, the god of the dead. So he really judged you before, judged you and decided, oh, well, you were a bad person, so you go to the underworld and you get punished. Or if you're a good person, you get to go up to what some of you might call heaven, but... And next, one goddess we're going to honor here is the goddess Bastet, and you may know her as the cat goddess, because usually she's depicted as a little cat here. Um, so, in her earliest forms, the goddess Bastet was represented as a woman with the head of a lion or a wild cat. She took the less ferocious form, and she took the form of a domestic cat in the first millennium. 
In, le- in later periods, she is often presented as a regal-looking, seated cat, sometimes wearing rings in her ears or in her nose. She can be associated with the great goddess Artemis, the divine hunter and goddess of the moon. Our next god we're going to jump to is the god Amon, who was the god of the air, and the name probably means the hidden it means the hidden one. He was usually represented as a man wearing a crown with two vertical plumes. His animal symbols were the ram and the goose. After the rulers of Thebes rebelled against a dynasty of foreign rulers known as the Hycock, as the they were known as the Hyksos and reestablished na- native. Egyptian rule throughout Egypt, Amon received credit for their victory in a form merged with the sun god Ray. He became the most powerful deity in Egypt, a position he retained for most of the New Kingdom. Today, the massive temple complex devoted to Amon Ray at Karnak is one is still one of the most visited monuments in Egypt. Before we move on to our next segment, I just want to throw in a couple um, honorary mentions for being either unique or kind of scary, and I found some actually kind of interestingly creepy ones here. Just a couple, though, gods and goddesses here. One of the gods that I've just discovered here is Amha. His name is Amha, okay? He was the god he was a god in the underworld and he was known as a as the devourer of millions and also he was called the eater of eternity. He also lived in a lake of fire, which that doesn't sound too good. But on the contrary, we have Amunet who was the goddess who welcomed the dead to the afterlife with food and drink. She was known as She of the West. Amunet was the consort of the divine ferryman. She lived in a tree near the gates of the underworld. She was the goddess of Hathor and Horus. Which, that's pretty interesting. I like that. (laughs) And my last little star of our list before we move on to a segment here is Amut. And Amut was a goddess with the head of a crocodile, the torso of a leopard, and hindquarters of a hippo. She sat beneath the scales of justice in the hall of truth in the afterlife and devoured the hearts of those souls who were not justified by Osiris. So that's actually pretty fearsome. You would not want to be eaten by her. So tell me, who's your favorite Egyptian god or goddess? Let me know down in Facebook or even on Anchor here. Alright, thank you guys so, so much for joining me for our third installment of this episode. Please join me next for our fourth and final installment of this episode. I'll see you then.
welcome back to our fourth and final segment of this episode for tonight. Tonight, I thought we would um, just do a little highlight into Egyptian folklore, Egyptian folklore creatures. And the first um, creature I want to mention is Apep, who was a giant mythological snake that stretched for over 50 feet from head to tail. Now, according to legend, every morning the Egyptian sun god Ra engaged in a heated battle with Apep, who was just coiled just below the horizon and could only shine his light after vanquishing his foe. What's more than this, subterranean movements of Apep were said to cause earthquakes and its violent encounters with Set, the god of the desert, which spawned terrifying thunderstorms. Even creepier enough, enough that this snake was known as the enemy of light. Next on our locate on our list is Bennu, which is known as the bird of fire. Now this is said to be an ancient source of the Phoenix myth, at least according to some authorities. Bennu, the bird god, was familiar of Ra, the sun god, as well as the imitating spirit that powered creation. Bennu was described as a giant red and gold bird, which was born anew every day like the sun. Later details about the mythical phoenix, such as its periodic destruction by fire, was added much later. But there is some speculation that even the word phoenix is a distant corruption of the word Bennu. So our next star of the list is something you may have heard before. It is the griffin, which is still shrouded in mystery. The ultimate origins are still shrouded in, shouted, shrouded in mystery. But we do know that this fearsome beast is mentioned, mentioned in both ancient Iranian and ancient Egyptian text. Now this is another chimera like Amet. The griffin features the head, wings, and talons of an eagle that's grifted into a lion's body. Since both eagles and lions are hunters, it's clear that the griffin served as a symbol of war, and it also did double and triple duty as the king of all mythological monsters and a staunch guardian of priceless treasures. On the premise of that revolution applies every bit as much as mythical creatures as it does to those made of flesh and blood. The griffin is most to, most to be one of the best adapted monsters in the Egyptian pantheon. Still going strong in the public imagination for over 5,000 years. Our next guest on the list is the Serpopard, the Harbinger of Chaos. The Serpopard is an unusual example of mythical creature for 
which no name has ever been abducted into the from the historical historical records. All that we know is that depictions of creatures with the body of a leopard and the head of a snake adorn various Egyptian ornaments. And when it comes to their presumed meaning, one classic guess is as good as another's. Another theory is that serpents represented the chaos and barbarism lurking in the borders of Egypt during the pre-dynastic period which was over 5,000 years ago, by the way. But since these Sumerians also fe- are also featured in the Mesopotamian art from the same time span, in pairs with necks entwined, they might also f- have served as symbols of fertility or masculinity. And our next on the list is Na- El-Nadiha, the Siren of the Nile. Now, this creature is a bit of a cross between the Little Mermaid, the Siren of Greek Myth, and that creepy little girl from the Ring movies, you know, Samara. Anyway, El Nadaha was a relative, was actually pretty recent. She was actually of pretty recent origin compared to the 5,000 year span of Egyptian mythology. Just within the past century, apparently, stories began to circulate in rural Egypt about a beautiful voice that calls by name to men walking around the banks of the Nile. Now, when the men are desperate to get a look at this enchanting creature, the bewitched victim veers closer and closer into the water until he falls or he is dragged in and drowns. El Nadaha is often adduced to being a classic genie, which, unlike other entities on this list, would place her in the Muslim rather than the classical Egyptian pantheon. And our last but surely not least for our podcast tonight is the ever-so-famous Sphinx, the teller of riddles. Now, Sphinxes aren't exclusively Egyptian. Depictions of these human-headed, lion-bodied beasts have been discovered as far as Turkey and Greece. But the Great Sphinx of Giza in Egypt is by far the most famous member of the breed. There are two main differences between Egyptian sphinxes and the Greek and Turkish variety. The former in variety have been the head of a man and are described as unaggressive and even-tempered, while the latter have often been female and they have an unpleasant disposition. And other than that, although all sphinxes serve pretty much the same function, to zealously guard the treasures And, ought to, and not to allow travelers to pass unless they can resolve a clever riddle. Alright y'all, thank you so much for joining me on our fourth and final section of tonight's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as I enjoyed doing the research and presenting it all to you tonight. 
I hope you join us next week for a new episode, or even you may join me tomorrow. I'm not sure I might record another episode Friday. I'll decide and let you guys know. Alright, I'll see you guys in our next segment. I'll see you in the outro, really. Hope to join you there. Also, I want to thank you guys so much for joining me for this episode. I had a really great time recording it and doing the research, and it was really fascinating and interesting. I loved it. Like I said before, uh, we do all different kinds of countries. This week we did, well, really flat the past week and a half, we did it on Egypt. Um, the week before that, we did it on Romania, and so forth. Every week we pick a different country, and... You can go on Facebook.com and choose and vote for which country you want to see be highlighted for our podcast and for posts and videos all week long. You can join us on Demimond Paranormal on Facebook.com, same way it's spelled here on Anchor. Also, once again, I'm Tori from Demimond. And thanks for joining us. I want to thank all my listeners from all around the world for listening to my podcast. It's really humbling and it's really inspiring. I hope you join us for another few episodes at least. So stick around. And for, without further ado, I wish you all good night, sweet dreams.